At the beginning of his first lecture in Intro to Biblical Greek, Dr. Moretto always gives his students a warning. He tells them that once they learn Greek, they will feel tempted to turn every sermon they preach into a word study. There are so many fascinating things to see once you start digging into the original languages. And seminarians, for the most part, are nerds. We like talking about all that stuff that you find. So Dr. Barreto cautions the room to remember that a preacher's job is to proclaim good news, not to teach a class. Knowing the biblical languages is certainly helpful, but people have been making meaning of scripture for thousands of years without that knowledge. And because of that, it's best to figure out other ways to get below the surface of the text. For almost my entire preaching career, I have heeded Dr. Barreto's advice. But today, I will not. Because in this case, I think there is only one way to really understand what is happening in this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. And that way is through a word study. So buckle up, friends, because it's time to learn some Greek. So on the screen, you will see the words from verse 3. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, yada, yada, yada. And you'll see that at the very end, there's a word untranslated. That word is anothen. Let's say it together. Anothen. Congratulations, you have now learned a Greek word. Now, in the reading, you heard this word translated as from above. That is because anothen means from above. Pretty straightforward. The problem with Amethyst is that it also means again. This is why in verse 4, Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can anyone be born after growing old? Because Nicodemus thought Jesus was saying you need to be born again, as in crawl back into the womb and then come out. And then, just for good measure, let's add in a third meaning. A new, because why not? One word, three meanings. And we can't capture all of these meanings in English. We don't have a word that means from above, and again, and a new. So translators have to choose one of the options. And most translators choose from above because they want to emphasize that Jesus and Nicodemus are not on the same page. So when this gets translated into English, the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus gets flattened into a simple misunderstanding. Jesus means one thing, you must be born from above, while Nicodemus thinks he means another, you must be born Again, Jesus is talking about something spiritual, and Nicodemus is talking about something physical. I'm not certain that's exactly what's happening here, though. For starters, Jesus never actually tells Nicodemus which meaning of anathem he 
he's using. Nor does he tell Nicodemus that he was wrong when he assumed Jesus meant that one must be born again. Instead, he simply tells him, don't be surprised by what I'm saying. In fact, he continues, and Jesus simply uses more words with multiple meanings. So, in verse 5, Jesus says, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and pneuma. Now, in the reading, you heard water and spirit. But the word Jesus uses, pneuma, has three meanings. Spirit, wind, and breath. So is Jesus saying that you have to be born, born of water and wind, water and breath, or water and spirit? And is this poor birth in addition to being born out of them, or is it the same as being born out of them? A side note, anytime you all accuse me from now on of playing word games, you will know that I'm simply trying to be like Jesus. Jesus is not just limited to word names in this passage. So in verse 14, for example, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus is referring to a story from the book of Numbers, where the people of Israel have been bitten by a horde of venomous snakes. As the story goes, Moses makes a bronze snake and puts it on a pole. And whenever a snake bit someone, that person would look at the snake on the pole, and they would live. And Jesus says that is how people will receive eternal life, when the Son of Man is lifted up like that, like a snake on a pole. Now, as the people who know how the story of Jesus goes, you are probably thinking, oh yeah, he's talking about the crucifixion. Jesus gets lifted up on a pole, people look at him, something about that whole thing saves us from our sins. Which is fair, but Nicodemus doesn't have any of that context. This is years before Jesus would be crucified, and crucifixion didn't have any spiritual significance that Nicodemus would be thinking of. So whatever image came into Nicodemus's mind certainly had nothing to do with the crucifixion and probably was a little nonsensical. If this whole encounter was just a misunderstanding, Jesus had plenty of chances to clarify or specify his meaning. And instead, he just continues to wade deeper into the confusion. So it seems to me that the messiness of this conversation is intentional. This is not just a misunderstanding. This is Jesus intentionally pushing language to its breaking point and beyond. So why does Jesus do this? Nicodemus comes to Jesus alone and at night. Clearly, he is searching for something. But not only is he searching, he's vulnerable. Whatever it is he wants to get from Jesus, he is afraid to get it in the daylight. So he's risking something here. But instead of wading into that vulnerability, 
vulnerability. The first thing Nicodemus does when he sees Jesus is start running through what he knows about him. It's almost like he needs to prove that he has enough prior knowledge to earn an answer from Jesus. Those of you who were at Winter Retreat might remember Brooke talking about this as our ideal knowledge of God. The things we think we are supposed to believe and say about who God is and who we are. We often try to use our ideal knowledge to convince ourselves that what we want is good or right or true. But in the process, we forget that God is not beholden to our knowledge, ideal or not. It is just like Jesus says. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. I think this is why Jesus responds to Nicodemus with words that defy definition. Anathem and Numa. These words are full of meaning, and if you try to pin them down, you lose something in the process. But that is what much of our spiritual seeking is about, trying to pin down the truth. We imagine that we will descend into uncertainty and questions, but that eventually we will emerge on the other side, questions answered and certainty secured. And when we finally come out on the other side with all of our hows resolved, then that will be our new beginning. But I wonder if the descent itself is the goal. If entering into that uncertainty is the new beginning that we see. That what is new there is not new knowledge, but new questions. And a newfound capacity to embrace the mystery of God. The point, then, is not to get it right, like Nicodemus tried to do. The point is to be drawn into the mystery, to imagine and even believe that despite all evidence to the contrary, one can indeed be born again and anew and from above, all at the same time. Mita Stamberg, Presbyterian pastor, says that when we become too sure of what we know about Jesus, when we believe that we have grasped him at last, that is when we can perhaps expect to be undone like Nicodemus. That undoing, that overturning of our certainty, may be a very good thing if it allows us to experience anew the miracle of our birth into eternal life has nothing to do with what we know or what we are, any more than our birth from our mother's womb did. It is a gift of life from the heart of the Father, breathing the spirit wind over us and through us, and opening our infant eyes to the Son, our teacher, lifted up to draw all people to himself and his lesson Friends, whatever it means to begin again, it will bring us into an encounter with the love that makes this rebirth possible.
Perhaps the way we will know when we have experienced it is when words are not sufficient to describe it. Now this is a rather complicated philosophical idea. And as I was trying to figure out how to explain this succinctly, a phrase popped into my head. We begin again when our how becomes a wow. And I will be honest, I think that is very corny. I think it's so corny that I almost did not want to say it out loud, and I debated cutting it from my sermon for a long time. <laughs> but corniness aside, I think it is about as straightforward as I can get. We begin again when our how becomes a wow. When we learn to hear the sound of God's spirit moving, but no longer want to master it or control it. When our desire to know or to be right is transformed into a desire to be captivated by God's love for us and the world. I think that is when we begin again. When our how becomes a wow. The Lent is a great time to practice this movement from how to wow. There are a lot of hows in Lent. How did Jesus survive in the wilderness for 40 days without eating? How does remembering we are dust make a difference? How does fasting from something help me connect with God? If you are holding these kinds of questions, I invite you to try shifting your hows to wows. Wow! Jesus fasted for 40 days. I wonder what he learned about himself in that time that helped him to overcome temptation in the end. Wow! I come from dust, and one day I will return to dust. I wonder if there are ways I am trying to resist this truth in my life. Wow. Fasting from something seems hard, but I wonder what will happen when I give that thing up so I can practice being present to God. When our hows become wows, we draw closer to the wonder and mystery of God. And we can call that mystery the presence of God, or the kingdom of God, or eternal life, or salvation. In the end, it is not the words that we use that matter. It is simply the love that we find there. So, how do we begin again? Perhaps instead we can say, wow, we can begin again. Thanks be to God.